Friends, believe it or not, we are, I guess we are two weeks away from Palm Sunday, three weeks away from Easter, and so we continue our series through the life and ministry of Jesus as we build up to Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. This morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 32. Beloved, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is perhaps one of the most beautiful and poignant parables of them all. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, 
and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back, safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Pray with me again. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this beautiful, beautiful parable of the good shepherd and the peasant woman and the lost sons. Father, we pray that you would give us a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, and his great love for his sheep, people even like us. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen. Now, many of you know, or might know, that one of our members is the varsity tennis coach for Trinity Christian Academy in Addison. His name is Lance Hagen, and he and I were talking a few weeks ago, and I mentioned to him that if he ever needed help on match days, that I would be happy to offer another set of eyes, because this year, Lance is the, uh, and he has been the coach for both the boys team and the girls team, but this year he has no assistant, and the boys team and the girls team play on the same day at the same time and so it is incredibly difficult for one person to watch all those matches and provide feedback and coaching and so I offered on match days happy to come out and help and watch and assist you in any way that I can. He was happy to accept the help but even to volunteer, this is a good thing, you have to go through a background check and a little bit of a process which takes a few days, and while that was in process, I went to go watch a match in my normal clothes just to kind of get to know the players and their names and be more familiar with what's going on. And there was this one match that was very exciting and intense, and I really invested, okay? I stood by the match, I committed to staying there, I cheered and all the rest, and it was, it was great. Well, the next day, I got the green light to actually go in an official capacity. I was able to attend as an assistant coach, and so I wore the gear. And a father came up to me, and he said, okay, now it makes sense. Okay, he had been wondering who I was and why I was there, but now that I was wearing the gear, he realized I wasn't a stalker, okay, and that I had a place there, you know, some random man being there. 
without that information could be a strange thing. Context is important, very important. And context is the key to understanding our parable today. And the context can be gleaned from the first two verses and helps us to understand what Jesus' point is. Look at verse 1, verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collector and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. At this point, the people of Israel had received and accepted Jesus as a rabbi within the community. And it infuriated the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus, who was viewed as a rabbi, would eat with people they viewed as sinners. Okay, we'll see later that like a tax collector was the kind of person they viewed to be a sinner. Someone who disregarded the law of God like a tax collector was someone they viewed to be a sinner. And tax collectors were viewed as like notorious sinners because they were viewed to be traitors. These Jewish tax collectors would negotiate with Rome a certain amount of taxes from a particular area. And if they landed the deal, they were obligated to pay that portion to Rome. But as you know, anything that they collected over and above that was theirs to keep. And they would extort God's people and do all kinds of terrible things and would collect far more than they had agreed with Rome. Okay, and they um, were the essence of outcasts in Israel. And Jesus was eating with these kind of people. And see, rather than sequestering themselves to like, you know, ancient Near Eastern versions of monasteries, the scribes and the Pharisees felt like they could remain clean as long as they didn't eat with sinners, okay, with people like that. They could walk on the same Rome road with them. You know, they could pass by them in terms of local commerce, and they wouldn't be defiled. But according to their oral tradition and oral law, to eat with them and to enjoy table fellowship with them would somehow pollute them, and they thought this was incredibly inappropriate for Jesus to do. They were to remain outcasts, according to the Pharisees. So for Jesus to eat with them would have been hugely problematic. It would have communicated to them that Jesus had a low view of sin, that he would deign himself to eat with these kinds of people. So Jesus tells three stories to answer their concern. And they are to be considered three parts of one parable. That's why we're taking it all together. The parable of the good shepherd and the peasant woman seeking for her coin and the two sons. It's all part of one parable that's an answer to the concern of the scribes and Pharisees. Let's look at verses 3 through 7. Verse 3, so he told them this parable, the word for parable, is singular. Three stories, one parable. So he told them this parable. What man of you, 
having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. One of the most beautiful pictures in all of Christendom is that wonderful shepherd who has the sheep over his shoulder, taking the sheep home. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And he's throwing this party. Verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not or who need no repentance. Or in other words, 99 persons who view themselves as righteous and don't perceive the need to repent. Okay, so on one level, Jesus' point is obvious and it is ingenious and masterful. God is like a good shepherd. And the shepherd metaphor is all over the Old Testament. Okay, the Israelites were understood to be God's sheep and God was the ultimate good shepherd. And everyone would have known what a good shepherd would do if one of his sheep were lost. He would drop everything to search for it until he found it. Sinners are like lost sheep. And he could have ended the parable there because no one could argue with that. Good shepherds go after lost sheep and therefore Jesus' outreach to and love for sinners totally justified. He really could. He could have stopped right there, point made, no one could argue or debate. But he didn't end there. He continued. Look at verses 8 through 10. But before we do, in this first story with the shepherd and the sheep, Jesus leaves a very important loose end that will get tied up at the end. And he does it on purpose. And it's why he didn't tell just one story to compose this parable. He tells three stories each of which has its own emphasis and reinforces this larger point. Okay, so go to verses 8 through 10, the second story, the silver coins. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, I have found the coin that I lost, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this also would have been another scenario about which there could be no debate. Because it would have been a huge crisis, for a peasant woman, presumably single and vulnerable, okay, to lose a tenth of her life savings, which is what one of ten represents. Okay? It would have been of tremendous value to her, and she would have been irresponsible not to search for it 
and to seek diligently for it. And so what it does is it reinforces the point of the first story, but to an even greater degree. Okay, whereas in the first story, the good shepherd lost one of a hundred, one percent, and he leaves the 99 to go get the one. Now we have a peasant woman who doesn't lose one percent. How much does she lose? She loses 10% of her life savings, which shows just how valuable that coin would be for her. No one could have blamed her for searching for it and getting on her hands and knees and seeking for it until she found it. Of course that was the right thing to do. And there was no rebuttal to this. Jesus is like that woman who, after having lost something incredibly valuable, sought for it and diligently searched for it. And he could have stopped there. He had made his point. There, again, there was, there was really no debate, no response. He would have left them speechless. But he continued to a third story. Let's see what he had to say here. Verses 11 and 12. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now this is fascinating. According to Kenneth Bailey, who was a first-rate Old Testament scholar and expert in ancient Near Eastern culture, intimately familiar with the customs and culture of the ancient Near East, according to him, this request would have communicated the, the utmost in disrespect, in contempt, and disdain for the father. This culture, he would argue, was part of the ancient Near East, the legacy of the ancient Near East, would have had many um, overlapping elements of an oriental culture, and so, to lose face or to be shamed by a family member was almost as bad as it could get. And for the son to say, give me my share of the estate now, would have been the equivalent of saying to his father, you are dead to me. Because you would not get that portion of the estate apart from the death of the patriarch. It was the same thing as saying, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. You are simply a means to an end for me, and so give me my stuff so that I can do what I want to do. It would have been public, because this would have been, you know, a small village community. And so for the son to do this and to leave and to do what he did would have brought great shame and humiliation on the father and the village and the people around would have thought the father to be incredibly irresponsible for granting the son's request it would have been very costly and sacrificial for the father to do so and yet that's exactly what he does and the son he doesn't waste time because things have gotten so tense and so awkward he gets out of town very quickly 
Look at verses 13 through 16. Not many days later, meaning very quickly thereafter, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. He wasn't just going away physically or geographically. This indicated that spiritually he was going far, far away. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. Now, everything about this part of the story is exaggerated to emphasize just how bad things had become for this younger son. First of all, he spent the entire inheritance recklessly, and he squandered it in a Gentile country. So asking for it to begin with was disrespectful and contemptful or contemptuous and then to go off and recklessly spend it all in a gentile country would be even more embarrassing and shameful and then there's a famine which implies a recession which implies there weren't any good jobs okay all the good jobs are gone we know this because the job that he took feeding pigs which no self-respecting jew would ever do because pigs were viewed to be and were unclean in the Jewish culture. No self-respecting Jew would ever take a job tending pigs. And certainly no Jew would ever long to eat these pods with the pigs ate because their stomachs couldn't even digest it. Which implies that the young boy or the young man was starving. And soon he would hit rock bottom. Verses 17 through 20. Now, interesting. Just a question before you, for you before I read this. When do you think, or when have you historically understood that the younger son repented? Okay, when do you think, because this whole, um, this whole parable is about the joy that God shows when sinners repent and trust in him. When does the younger son repent? Okay, let's look at verses 17 through 20. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, One, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Two, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And three, treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Okay, so he determined that he would give a three-part speech, okay? I would argue here that we are not to confuse this with repentance at this point. Okay, that, that phrase that he came to himself really communicates that he understood the gravity and the severity of his situation and that if he didn't go home, 
he was a dead man. If he didn't go to his father in particular, he was a dead man. Okay, he could have never gotten a job as a hired hand in the village. Why? Well, because of the way he had humiliated and disgraced his father. No one in the village would have ever given him a job. And he didn't have any skills to work anywhere else. Okay, because he was a part of the, of, of the family. And so the hired hands would have done most of the work there. His only hope for, for survival was in going home to his father. It was his only recourse. And so he works out this deal in his mind that he thought might be satisfactory to his father. Okay, one that would do what? That would enable him to pay his father back. And one of the reasons that Jesus includes this is he is trying to counteract the works righteousness mentality, the earn your way back into the good graces of God mentality that was so pervasive in Judaism of the first century. So this is not an expression of repentance. This is when the younger son comes to himself and realizes that if he doesn't change things in a hurry, he's going to be in real trouble. Okay, so here we go. Look at the second half of verse 20. Just a beautiful picture. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, how would his father see him when he's a long way off? The text would imply the father was waiting for him and looking for him and expecting him and longing for him. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, according to very early sources, an ancient, an ancient Near Eastern man with any sense of self-respect would have never run in public. Okay, Because to run in public would have been humiliating for any man of status because what you would have to do, I mean, these robes were long. They, they almost went down to your feet. You know, imagine running in a long, thick choir robe, okay? It would be very awkward, very clumsy. And so what you would have to do is you would have to pick it up, okay, roll it up. In essence, exposing yourself, which was fine for younger children to do, or for people who didn't have status to do, but for a respected man of the community to roll up his robes, pull them up in his hand, and expose himself and run awkwardly down the street would have been very costly to the reputation of this man, and yet that is exactly what he did. It was a beautiful and vivid expression of costly love. And I would argue it is that that got the son's attention. Okay, that is what began the change in the boy. Look at verses 21 through 24. And the son said to him, One, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Two, 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Do you notice what's missing? There's a key component of the speech that he had rehearsed in the far off country that he does not repeat. He doesn't repeat the third part. He does not try to negotiate and become one of the father's hired hands. Why is that? You see, when his father ran to him and embraced him and kissed him, the son realized how much the father loved him. Realized the true nature of his offense. It wasn't financial primarily. It was relational. And that's really at the core of all sin. Sin is, at its core, a relational affront to the character and person of God. Okay, It wasn't about the money the son learned. What was it about? It was about the relationship. The compassionate love of his father... Like, what would he have expected the father to do in an ancient Near East or an Oriental culture? The son was probably expecting to get backhanded across the face, okay, and banished forever. That is not what he got, okay? The compassionate love of his father cut him to the quick, and that's when he repented, and that's why he did not convey the third part of his speech. That's when the costly and sacrificial love of the father hit home. And it changed him. And so without paying his father a penny because of the gracious, compassionate love of the father, the younger son was restored to full sonship. And in this beautiful and costly banquet, the father puts his best robe on him See, he was conferring the status of sonship back on his boy. He puts on him a robe. He gives him his ring. It was a signet ring. And so he could now engage in commerce in the name of his father. He put sandals on his feet, which is not something that the hired hands wore. And he killed for him the fattened calf which would have been a huge expense. Scholars call this a reinvestiture ceremony where he is reinvesting with his son, reinvesting his son, all the elements of sonship. Okay, and just like the other two stories when something was lost and found, friends and neighbors and the community was invited to come to the celebration. So he did this, not only to reinforce this to his son, but to let the whole community know, my son has been restored to full sonship, full status. 
the boy was the son again, and he was home because the father had found him. You know, he didn't come home, so to speak, so much as the father found him and changed him with his compassionate love. The Bible says it's the kindness of God. It's the love of God that is the key to repentance, that moves us to repentance. Last part here. And it's going to come with a twist. And it's really always been about this. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 20. But he was angry and refused to go in. So just very briefly, going back to when the younger son said, Give me my portion of the estate so that I may go. Again, in an oriental culture, the father would have backhanded him and banished him because of the gravity and the seriousness of that offense, but the father didn't. He let him go. That's what would happen here. What's going on inside at that banquet is you have friends and community members and valued members of the family celebrating the feast and the older son in his pride and his presumption and his insolence refuses to come in, okay, bringing shame and contempt, disrespect and disdain for the father because he would have done it publicly. This would have been public. The father would have had to leave the banquet. Everybody would have known exactly what was going on as he went out. And you would expect him to slap his son and send him away, but that's not what he does. The text says he entreated his son, which means he pleaded with the boy. Amazing. Amazing. Verse 28. His father came out and entreated him, which means he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. Okay, that's the language of a slave. Okay, that conveys to you the way that the older son viewed their relationship. Not as a father and a son, but a master and a slave. So sad. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you or slaved for you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, okay, we don't know that that's what the son did, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother. He was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, here's the deal. Turns out that the younger son wasn't the only brother who was lost. The other brother was lost as well. And that's the point 
The scribes and the Pharisees viewed other people as sinners. People like tax collectors. Those people were sinners and lost. And they did not realize that they were every bit as lost as the tax collectors that they judged. All his years of serving his father wasn't out of love and devotion by the older brother, but simply out of duty. And therefore, he thought he was owed something. It was like a transactional relationship. Jesus ends the story brilliantly with a cliffhanger. The younger brother, he's been found, he's been restored, but the older brother, he won't come in. He's outside. What happens to him? Okay, let's go back to that loose end. What was the loose end that Jesus did not tie up in the story about the good shepherd and his sheep? How does that part of the story end? That part of the story ends with the good shepherd and the lost sheep at home. But what about the 99? What happened to them? They're still out in the open country, and we don't know. And the 99, and the older son, okay? The parable is for them. The parable is for the scribes and the Pharisees who need to understand just how lost they are. And they need to understand that they have a compassionate and gracious Savior and Shepherd in the Lord Jesus Christ who longs to see them home. This story has always been about the compassion, grace, and costly love of the Father. And Jesus' point to the scribes and the Pharisees is that we are all sinners, Pharisees and tax collectors alike. The key to being found, my friends, is realizing that you are lost. And apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, every single one of us is lost. And we are in the open country. Another translation of that term is wilderness. We are, we are in the desert. We are estranged from God, but he has given us a gracious and loving shepherd in Jesus who longs to bring us home. One of the most enduring images of the Bible is that of the good shepherd finding the lost sheep and putting him over his shoulders and caring for him and bringing him home. Oh, my friends, to be found by him is the greatest thing in the world. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for these three stories that compose perhaps this, the most beautiful and significant of all of the parables. Indeed, it is a, a metaphor for the entirety of the Christian life. Father, help us more and more to see Jesus as the wonderful Savior, the good shepherd who seeks after 
lost sheep. Father, help us to internalize this parable as applying to us. Father, help us to see the joy and feel the joy of being found by him. The Lord Jesus, in his matchless name we pray. Amen.